Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 68. Off the road, a modern day walk down the pilgrim's route into Spain. By Jack Hitt. is brought to you by the two true freaks internet radio network this podcast is all about books and literature and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determined whether or not it is required reading i'm your host tom pannery so i'll be taking you down this camino into santiago de compostela and i'm dragging my co-host with me because i have just pulled her from the midsummer cult it's stella we need to Thank reaffirm you. your faith. I was so close <laughs> to being the May Queen, but I just I fell down I out of exhaustion after all that dancing. So I appreciate it. So who ends up in the bear suit, Don or Harry? <laughs> it has to be Don. <laughs> his hypocrisy, his constant betrayals, has got to be. There's an old David Letterman bit where he used to put a guy in a bear suit and see if he can get into like somewhere in new york city like can a guy in a there was like they, they would name the segment can a guy in a bear suit get into the russian tea room and so every once in a while like when i think of that movie i'm like can a guy in a bear suit get into a swedish cult so there you go yeah anyway we're not talking about bear suits no or, or snoots or bears because we did that in um the a walk in the woods we're on another trek though and we'll get to that in a second but before we do how are you doing okay uh it's summer and i don't have a break which is sad but i will have i guess i have to speak in the future or in the past i've gone on a trip to germany mm. i technically leave on uh saturday but by the time reporting. people hear this i will have returned so that and so i'm looking forward to that and then that's with my father and i also just literally just finished today Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. Isn't that her name? Yep. Yeah, which, of course, is one of our people that we've 
discussed. So I remember that someone, somebody, maybe it was Robert, maybe it was Joe, had posted on our Facebook group that it was coming out. Mm-hmm. So it just came in. I was on hold for a while and I did it and ate it all up. And I loved it. It was really good. Cool. I couldn't tell you what it was about for about 150 pages, but it was really good. So, um, but yeah, otherwise, just trying to make it. Cool. And uh, yeah, and here we are. Sea of Tranquility is sitting in my to-read pile. Um, oh. I bought a copy when I went down to our local independent bookstore in the downtown mall, New Dominion Bookshop, on uh, Independent Bookstore Day about a month and a half ago. So where are you going in Germany again? I don't know. Uh, I guess by the, the point that by the time that people <laughs> hear this, I will have known. But I think the only thing I know, there's some Austria going on there. There's Frankfurt. Mm. But it is, it's mostly my father's trip. I'm just accompanying him. Okay. And it's actually very freeing because normally when there are trips, I'm usually in charge of such things and know the day-to-day and, Mm -hmm. you know, I have to keep people on top of it. But I'm just like, I'm going to go wherever I'm told to go. Everything's going to be a surprise. I'm looking forward to it. I've been to Germany twice. Oh, okay. In Do you have any advice, um, Rich Steves? Uh, the the public transportation is really good, from okay. what I remember. Um, I, twenty two thousand so twenty two years ago, I was in Cologne for a trade show when I was working at a dot com, and the we got everywhere using um, like public transit like light rail trains and stuff like that was just so easy uh easy to navigate i mean i I loved it the you know it's it's easy to they speak english just as well as you do like it's a really easy country to navigate not like you had never been to a country that where people where you have to navigate the language anyway because you have but um i don't know i just i remember it being very friendly and I, i remember enjoying it very much the first time i was in uh i wasn't with a tour group when i was in high school um, and did, uh, in Bavaria. So that was pretty cool. Um, Cologne has a gorgeous cathedral. I did all, I did this climb to the top of the tower thing that you can do this, you know, 300 something steps up. And, uh, I love how cities in Europe and, and to a big extent in the United States, but I, in general, I love how cities are so walkable. Mm. So I'm just yeah. I'm a huge fan of that. Um, especially since the part of, um, when it comes to like shopping and things like that, like, you know, especially since where I live and, and where you live, you have to drive to go walk somewhere. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, love the suburbs sometimes. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway. All right. So speaking of walking, ah, <laughs> uh, segue. Um, we are, we are doing, uh, we're doing a book called, uh, this is a third of our four, um, books that we're going to be looking at where, where somebody, an author or a narrator is on some sort of hike. Um, and I believe we're all, we're doing all nonfiction books in this regard, if I'm not mistaken. And we've done a walk in the woods by Bill Bryson. We did wild by Cheryl Strait, which is probably like the two of the biggest known ones. Um, Peek behind the curtain. I actually, prior to choosing this, was was considering a different book. Um, had read it, enjoyed it, but I was like, I really don't feel like discussing it. Um, there's just something where I was like, eh, I don't know about this. Uh, but I will bring it up in our special for number seventy, which is going to be kind of about traveling and treks and this sort of this whole subgenre as a whole. Um, so 
look ahead there. But uh, this is called Off the Road. It is by Jack Hitt. Um, and I'm going to get into a little bit about him and the book and the pilgrimage or that this is uh, that he is following. Um, I don't want to make an assumption here, but this was the first time I'd ever heard of this book. And I'll get into why I chose this book in a minute. And I'm going to assume that you, this is the, for your first exposure to this book as well. That's correct. Okay. Um, let me do the history of the book itself, and then I'm going to ask you a question about the um, route he travels. All right. So Jack Hitt was born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina. Since 1996, he has been a contributing editor to NPR's This American Life series. He has produced a number of pieces for that show. In 1995, he served as a consultant on the movie Hackers. Sorry. Wow. Regarding techniques of cybercrime. He has a few books published as well, including 2012's A Bunch of Amateurs, A Search for the American Character, where he meets and talks to a bunch of people who are inventing and tinkering in garages and basements. That kind of sounds interesting. Um, off the road, the book we're reading is published uh, was originally published in 1994. I don't know how it did regarding sales, but here are some of the reviews from um, the media at the time. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle says Hit's humble pilgrimage stands out as a welcome change. Engaging and offbeat, this modern day version of Chaucer's tale is lively enough to wake St. Thomas from the dead. Los Angeles Times says Hit recounts his hodge in luminous prose, at times Chaucerian in tone and scope, at times reflective, even magical. Hit's chronicle resounds with wit, wonder, and curiously satisfied. Kirkus says, and so though there is much of interest in both the journey and the telling, many readers will be put off by the author's self-indulgent tone. Publishers Weekly said this offbeat travelogue describes a self, a still living tradition of the pilgrimage and a culture of the road, both delightful and informative. Um, there was one particular Amazon review, because I was getting news reviews off of Amazon, where somebody said, I loved this because it was not a religious look at this, at the thing. So if you don't, if you, if you get offended by not seeing the word God capitalized, you won't like this book. Um, which I found, I, I kind of chuckled at that, but, um, but yeah, so it got, it got good reviews. It got some, some middling reviews, uh, in 2010 portions of the book were adapted and used as the inspiration for the film, the way, uh, this is an independent film directed by Emilio Estevez and starring his father, Martin Sheen. Uh, the conceit of that film is that Sheen plays a father whose son has just died while hiking the Camino de Santiago, which is the pilgrimage that Jack Hitt uh, takes in this book. He then takes up the pilgrimage for him and spreads his ashes along the route. It's not a direct adaptation, and I wanted to mention it because it is the whole reason I ended up choosing the book, because I caught The Way on Netflix a number of years ago. It might have been it's before I moved to this house. It was like 2013, 2012 or so. And I'd heard a couple of really good things about it. It looked fairly interesting. And I was just it was just, I was just very charmed by the movie. You know, so when I was thinking about books about. What other book can I read about somebody walking and hiking? And there were a couple of books that I saw about the Continental Divide Trail and which is kind of the third of the Triple Crown of American Hiking. And we've read the other two legs. 
but I couldn't find anything that like really stuck out to me or that was available at the library. But I remember the, the, that movie, the Camino. And then I was like, Oh, you know, it'd be really interesting to see, you know, that sort of, that sort of thing, the religious pilgrimage and the, and the writer. And, and so I was like, well, if they took some of the stories from this for that movie, which I really liked, maybe I'll like that. And I'll include a link to it in the show notes if I can find it on streaming. I think it's a rental on Amazon at this point. Before we get to the plot of the book, um, I'm going to get up into the background on the Camino de Santiago, which uh, most of which is taken from Rick Steves' book, For the Love of Europe, which came out last year. Uh, before I do that... Uh, this was the, the that movie I mentioned that Emilio Estevez movie was the first time I'd ever heard of the Camino de Santiago. And, and it, you know, it just kind of fascinates me, you know, the whole route. And I've watched a couple of YouTube videos where like people take you through like the whole thing and in, inside of 20 minutes or whatever, you know, or like really quickly. Um, had you heard of that particular pilgrimage prior to prepping for this episode? I can't remember. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like. I must have, honestly, but let's just say no. Okay. Now, neither of us, full disclosure, neither of us is Catholic. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so it might not have been that familiar. And we're going to get into the history of it right now. We're going to get into the history of it as we discuss the book, as well as the whole concept of the religious pilgrimage and that sort of journey. Because as is mentioned in the book, if there are two biggies in terms of Christian pilgrimages or Catholic pilgrimages, the destinations are usually either the Holy Land, you know, Jerusalem, etc., or Rome. But this was uh, very, very popular in the Middle Ages and is regained popularity today. Um, and like I said, I'm getting a lot of this from Rick Steves, who is a great source for it. In fact, I will in the show notes place uh, a link to a YouTube video he has where he has portions of his travel show that take us along the Camino de Santiago so you can see it and you can learn a little bit about it. It's a great like 15 minute video segment. That's just again, it's just it's a nice little uh, slice of it, summary of it that that works really well. Um, the Camino de Santiago translates to the way of St. James, and it ends at Santiago de Compostela, where the bones of St. James are interred in its huge cathedral. Saint, uh, this particular St. James is one of the original apostles, although it has more of a connection to the Reconquista of 1492. Supposedly, the bones of St. James were discovered in Spain, and that was used as inspiration for taking back the country from the Moors. Of course, the Reconquista led to the Spanish Inquisition, which I'm sure you didn't expect to hear about on this podcast. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! It also leads to the flexing of Spain's new imperial might at this time, and in 1492, the Spanish monarchy, while they're torturing Jews, Muslims, and other people they deem, quote, heretics, also sponsor the first voyage of Christopher Columbus, who does the same to people in the new world. So America. All right. So back to the history oh of the Camino de Santiago. It's widely believed today that the finding of St. James's bones was more or less a hoax drummed up to be propaganda for the Catholic church, but it worked. Um, eventually the Camino was established beginning at the French town of St. John Pierre de Port and spanning 450 miles to Santiago although some pilgrims extend their travel to Finisterre, Spain, which translates to the end of the world. It's a shoreline town about 90 miles beyond Santiago. 
Uh, and without getting too much into the weeds here, there are a few routes a pilgrim can take. The route that hit and most other uh, pilgrims tend to take is nicknamed the French Way. The popularity of the Camino had reached a low point in the 1980s. Uh, in fact, it kind of disappeared after the Protestant Reformation, the Black Death um, in the Middle Ages. And you have to remember, from about the 1930s into about 1975, Spain was under fascist rule. You know, Francisco Franco was the you know, the president of Spain. So that was another thing that just, you know, there you weren't having a lot of you know, tourists come into this particular country or pilgrims. So it gets rediscovered in the 80s, toward the late 80s and into the 90s, which is right around when Hit writes this book, because he takes the he takes the particular um, trip that we're going to read about. Um, so in the 90s, a renaissance of the Camino begins. It continues to this day in 2019. And I'm sure I could have gotten 2020 or 2021 statistics, but COVID being what it was, I wanted to go back to the last time the world was sort of quote unquote normal for, mm -hmm. for statistics on how many people hiked the Camino. According to the Pilgrim Office in Santiago, and I don't know if this is completion or at least signed in to start, but it might, since it's Santiago, it might be completion. 347,578 pilgrims hiked the Camino in 2019. So it is it is an incredibly popular pilgrimage. All right. So let's get into the plot synopsis. Structured similarly to Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods, Off the Road, and I have to assume that the title is a jab at Kerouac, is a recount of Jack Hitt's own hike along the Camino de Santiago, as well as a history of the Pilgrim's Voyage, both on this particular route and the history of pilgrimages in general. The book is divided into chapters based on the route of the Camino, beginning in St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port and finishing in Santiago. He even provides us with a map of the route uh, in the front of the book, and I have to admit, I kept checking the map as I went through the book. And he names all the chapters after different cities along the way, which is, uh, to his publisher's credit or his, is, is a good way to follow everything. So there you go. Anyway, our journey begins in New York, of all places, which is where Hit's living at the beginning. Um, and it also begins with Hit confessing to the reader that he's not religious. He'd thrown off the shackles of religion sometime in the 1970s. And at the point where he takes up this pilgrimage and writes the book, he's more of an has more of an indifference to it than anything else. He had become interested in the Camino de Santiago in recent years, as had a number of other people, after scholars had gone back and rediscovered and retraced as much of the route's original medieval trails as they could instead of what it had become, which was a road-based and often dangerous hike. The people still doing the, Santa, uh, the Camino while it was kind of dead, there were, there were a number of them who would get hit by cars and killed. Hit in planning the trip figures it's going to take him about a month or two, and he should plan on reaching Santiago by July 25th. That is the Feast of St. James, uh, that, that particular day. And according to the Rick Steves book, um, it takes roughly a month if you hike about 15 miles a day. So it's, it is a month, a month to two months is, is average time. We get some history of St. James himself before Hits heads off to do the Camino. Uh, there's a recounting of where exactly he shows, uh, St. James shows up in the gospel noting that he and his brother, John, and this is where I have Sunday school flashbacks singing that there were 12 disciples song, were cousins of Jesus. Uh, they often drew the jealousy of the other disciples. James shows up in Acts 
as well, preaching around the Holy Land until his execution by Herod. According to Hit, what we get after his appearances in the Bible is mostly embellishment and legends courtesy of his devotees. The Spanish connection is that he supposedly preached in Spain before returning to the Holy Land and then being martyred. His remains were gathered by his disciples and brought to Spain. Then they were basically lost and eventually rediscovered during the Crusades. This led to the establishment of the pilgrimage to Santiago, the third big pilgrimage in addition to Roman Jerusalem. The symbol of the Camino eventually becomes the scallop, which is something that each pilgrim ties to their backpack and is also the symbol that many modern signs along the Camino use for guideposts. Um, and it should be pointed out that throughout the book, they talk about there are times where like he loses the trail or somebody's quote marking the trail. By now, it's incredibly clearly marked with those these uh, seashell. It's almost like a scalp radiating light on a blue background and yellow arrows pointing exactly where the Camino goes. Santiago, by the way, is mentioned in Dante's La Vita Nuova, where Dante says, None is called a pilgrim save he who is journeying toward the sanctuary of St. James of the Compostela. Hitt also notes that many pilgrims would not journey to Santiago expecting miracles the way that someone would do if they were to travel to, say, Lourdes, France, or Lourdes, France. And uh, by the way, I only know that place exists because that's the name Madonna gave her first child. Um, and the incentive for going to Santiago is an absolution of sins from the Pope if the pilgrimage completed. That tracks. This is a medieval pilgrimage. This is the medieval church. And they certainly saw the appeal and dollar signs attached to pilgrimages like this because it's basically plenary indulgence. And that's a practice that actually comes up in another great work of literature about religious pilgrimage, which was mentioned in a couple of the reviews that I read, Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales, uh, specifically The Pardoner's Tale. He, he tells his tale, then he basically is like, why don't you pay me for absolution of your sins? And uh, me and Alan and Em are all staring at Martin Luther. The trip that hits takes begins in New York and a visit to the Cloisters. It's a museum that is associated with the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It is on the upper, 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 upper west side of Manhattan. Like, really, it is like the upper tip of Manhattan. From that point, it's like in Washington Heights, and you can see the GW Bridge from the shore and stuff like that. Um, this is called the Cloisters because it contains parts of the Cloisters of St. Saint, I'm going to I took French in high school and two semesters in college. I know. I'm disappointed Saint, at your struggles here. saint Guilhelm Desert in France. And if you want a really good look at the cloisters, uh, check out episode 96 of the Bowery Boys New York City History Podcast. Uh, they give us a history of that particular branch of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I'm going to link to their show notes for that in the show notes for ours because they have a kind of a some pictures and stuff. And if you're interested in New York City history, by the way, The Bowery Boys is a great podcast. Just just a recommendation there. Anyway, he, he decides what he's going to do. He's like going to, instead of just going straight to St. Jean Pied-de-Port, he's going to go to the original location of the Cloisters in France. So he gives us a history of that location and the New York Museum. And then he talks about how the pilgrims used to dress. He ponders the origin of the walking stick they were often seen with. But they also would carry a gourd for drinking uh, water out of and the scallop, of course. And then he gets equipped at Eastern Mountain Sports, where he describes being surrounded by a pack of wilderness consultants who see him as, quote, a gold card carrying desk jockey with a head full of distant vistas. So, 
like back when you would watch those old cartoons and the person would turn into a lollipop and would say sucker. He also considers how he should go about obtaining a scallop. Uh, he eventually will buy one when he gets to Europe and he begins his tra- trip in Saint Gilhelm. Um, only to find that really they ship the entire cloisters to New York City. The guy's like, he's like, where are the cloisters? He's like, they're in New York. So feeling kind of dumb, he hops on a train to Ortez and from there walks along a highway to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, where he will meet the first of many odd characters who become a part of the narrative from here on out. Madame de Brill, an ornery French woman who runs the Centre de Tours Saint-Jacques de Compostelle, who immediately questions his authenticity, especially since he didn't walk the entire way to the village. And she rants about all the fake pilgrims out there. She's also a complete anti-Semite and has actually never walked the Camino, which, of course. Nevertheless, he takes off on his quest into the Pyrenees. He gets lost. He winds up back in Saint-Pierre-de-Port. And then he eventually finds his right way. And at this point, I could keep going here. Um, this is the story of the journey, and but I also don't want to get too bogged down in the minutiae of the trip. But let's just say he makes it from point A to Z on the Camino. It is to bring up a cliche, though, more about the friends he makes along the way, or at least about the weird-ass people he encounters. Uh, there's Carlos, who tries to get him to run with the bulls in Pamplona. There's Javier, who is a stickler for the rules of the Camino and walking its correct path. In Torres del Rio, there is Ramon, who offers shelter in an abandoned church that's literally falling apart. Uh, Ramon is a topic of conversation among Hit and his fellow pilgrims because he's not exactly all mentally there, and he's there's like a Norman Bates thing going on with that guy. Eventually, we do get the main supporting cast, the people he kind of picks up or this group kind of forms as they start running into each other so often on the Camino. And I would imagine that's pretty authentic as to what the journey is like. I'm sure that there are groups who decide like much like you have like sponsored trips to the Holy land or Rome or whatever, you know, um, I'm sure that there are groups that sponsor treks along the Camino, but I'm also, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that, a group of like five or six people who end up arriving at Santiago together started separately and just kind of organically formed because maybe they were just always at the same place at the same time. And they just kind of kept up with one another. Um, I would imagine that's the type of thing that might happen on something like this. Um, so let's talk about who they are. We've got two Flemish filmmakers named Rick and Carl, uh, their cameraman, Willie, another crew member named Claudie, who becomes one of Jack's, uh, better friends on the trip there's this random italian guy who latches on it's kind of a pain there's a number of other people they run into during the rest of the trip and like i said it become a motley crew it seems like they settle into a dynamic where they more or less annoy one another over the course of their travels and also they all seem to acknowledge how the trip can be monotonous and routine uh this includes learning the rituals of a new town interacting with its locals as well as other pilgrims including jesus I mean, Jesus, who hosts them for a large gathering where Hit once again has his authenticity questioned because he decides to stay in a hotel instead of a hostel. And then Jesus joins them on the road, claiming he is marking the old road for future pilgrims, but he's actually just scamming people. There's also uh, other ridiculousness along the way, especially with Willie uh, and those two Flemish filmmakers. At one point, Willie assaults two Spanish women and then Willie's wife 
who has joined them, loses her shorts while riding a mule. They actually end up buying that mule. They fight with one another on a particularly hard day, and there's this mini-drama between the filmmakers and Willie. At one point, they're actually ready to kill one another because of this crappy caravan they own and are driving. Uh, the upside of this is that Claudia and Jack spark up a friendship as a result, and uh, because he takes Claudia with all, him along the trail, leaving the other three to fight with one another. It is one of those many examples of the strange dynamic of companionship made along the Camino, and even though Hit started by himself, he finds himself unable to avoid the interactions and even the dramas. For every moment he forges on by himself, there is one where he meets up with everyone. It's almost as if they're fated to make it together in some way and inevitably become part of a group, as I said earlier. Of course, they do reach Santiago. Uh, despite his own doubts about his authenticity as a pilgrim, Hit is overcome with emotion. We get a history of the cathedral and what is contained inside, and then he receives his diploma for completing the trek. They party. The Flemish filmmakers seem to get what's coming to them. And then they all slowly depart over the course of the week, which is when Hit finally heads back to Madrid for his flight out to the United States. In an afterward written for a later edition of the book, Hit recalls when Claudia came to visit him in the summer a few years later. By this point, he is married with two kids. It's an awkward few days as Claudia is looking for debauchery and Jack is stuck with being dad. He uh, reads another account of the pilgrimage of the actress Sir McLean, and he eventually comes to the conclusion that there is insight to be found in the minutia of the journey, which is something he has realized about life with his kids. All right, so that is off, off the road. Um, we start this by with the same question that we always ask, which is, did you like it? Okay, it's complicated, but, I, <laughs> but I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. Here is my second question. Were you like me and that you were more interested in the Camino de Santiago, its history, the trip as a concept rather than the author and his particular journey? Yes. Okay. So I didn't care for Jack. I there are moments that he is funny, mm -hmm. but he mostly grates on my nerves. And I think part of it is a very personal reason because he is making fun of stuff that I do actually care about. Um, but also the majority of the cast of characters I thought were just like awful. I'm actually I really liked Javier mm -hmm. and I was so annoyed at Jack for like telling him, you know, don't do, do this thing. But Javier wanted to do like this legitimate way. Who is Jack to say like, no, you, you shouldn't do that. Do it this easier way. So there are just times that I got really annoyed. Yes, there were some times that I chuckled. Uh, but the history, yeah, I thought was the most interesting and kind of that there was a thread. I feel like maybe we lost it a bit, but it came back of who killed um, Charlemagne. You know, that was yeah. kind of like a little mystery there. And so that that was really interesting. But overall, I think I'm going to have to say no. Yeah, because I think he goes into a Basque village and like the, the it's been said that the Muslims, you know, during the Crusades or whatever and – the Basques are like, no, the Basques killed Charlemagne. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Like where I think what, what drew me to him initially was that I, I could identify with him on some level, you know, I'm not somebody who I'm indifferent or, or lapsed as far as religion and such is, um, kind of my state of being at the moment. So to, to have this, to have this, 
taken by somebody who is kind of an outsider to it on some level was I thought was an interesting perspective and uh, kind of followed in the line with the other two books we read where um, both Bill Bryson and Cheryl Strayed were not experienced hikers on their respective mm-hmm. trails. Um, but yeah, he graded on, sometimes he was, sometimes <laughs> he was funny. Yeah. Some of the situations were funny. The whole thing with Ramon was actually like, it was funny and scary at the same time. We'll get to that in a minute. But there were times where he was totally being the ugly American. Mm-hmm. And there were times where I was just like, you're, you're a little too dismissive of this. When he got into the reporting, not reporting, but when he got into the history, the background stuff, the context, I thought that was where his, some of his best writing was. Because I thought he related what is essentially like a history textbook's worth of stuff. And, and a lot, because he, he, he talks, there's a lot that he covers. It's almost like he covers almost like an entire medieval history literature course um, over the course of this trek. Because he's talking about like the Song of Roland and Charlemagne and how how pilgrimages came about in the history of St. James and, you know, the Reconquista, you know, like a lot of these things. And I thought he did that. That was some of the best writing because I could follow it really, really well. And, I, and it drew me in. Whereas um, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes that'll take you right out of the book. Like, because it's obviously like filler. You know, um, a book that a book that a lot of my students agree with me on that does this is Jack John Krakauer's Into the Wild, where like he has a great central story, but he had to obviously pad it out to make it a book. So he had he added something about himself and is how he related to Alex, uh, Chris McCandless. And uh, and we were all like, yeah, anytime he talked about himself, I was like, OK, get on with it. I'll get back to the main story here when when hit was doing that i was like no this is the more interesting stuff and and you're right i'm kind of with you where i was way more interested in the camino and i think my other thing disappointment was like like i said i mentioned that that 2010 film the way um sheen martin sheen is the main character um and it was not directly adapted from this book there were like different kind of stories from it taken it was always used as a little bit of source material and in that movie He's a grieving father who is who who like Emilio Estevez's character, like so his actual son plays his son. His son has died on the Camino. And the concept is like, okay, I'm gonna hike this, and he's carrying his son's ashes and spreading them along the way. Mm. And there's a lot more heart to it, and there's a lot better motivation, even though Martin Sheen's character is a very lapsed, kind of like cynical old man type of character. But you, I don't know, you can, I connect more to him. I think never, nothing really changes about him over the course of the, and I'm not expecting like a full religious conversion or anything, but I didn't feel like he connected with something the way that our other protagonists did. What do you think about that? Yeah, and... I guess it was a bit obnoxious in my opinion that he and and I can see in the beginning, but consistently he didn't know why he was doing this. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like our other authors did have some sort of purpose in mind and whether or not I, I, I just don't know. I wish I could have gotten behind whatever it was, you know, to 
better understand why is he on this journey, but to consistently not know. And I guess the end said like he was on the journey to figure out why he was on the journey. Yeah. And I thought, well, okay, but did you? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> did you figure out why? Was there any sort of, yeah, purpose there? I know. I, I think at the very end, when he maybe drops his, his bravado, I don't know if that's what it is, and does have that emotional moment. I mean, that was, that was beautiful. And it seemed like it wasn't false or anything, but it takes so much, you know, for him to, to get to that point and, I just don't know where his head actually was mm. on the journey. It just seemed like it was so wrapped up in the social aspects, which is, of course, different from, you know, with our first book in this little series. You just had the duo. Mm -hmm. Cheryl really wanted to be by herself. So this is very much um, like the extreme where we would put pipe probably put Bryson in between those two yeah. and you just don't get a sense because he doesn't necessarily talk too much about you know what is he going through it's just like what's going on like what's the daily soap opera mm -hmm. at that point there's a um bravado is a great word for that because there's a tone and it it's very typical among men and and there are female writers who are like this, but there are a lot of male writers who are like this, especially of um, certain generations, mine included, where uh, there's like this shield of bravado of kind of being too cool for school and not allowing emotions to show through, which makes that very emotional moment at the end what it is, because you feel like something genuine is poking through this. Mm -hmm front but you never get the sense that he's even grappling with any of it up until that point you know like that i don't know maybe i'm psychoanalyzing him too much from my own perspective but there's a sense of not wanting to appear vulnerable to your reader because i have to keep up my shtick and i think that got very tiring as the novel the novel sorry as the book went on like, I get it at the beginning, right? And it, it would be a acceptable or a, or a, yeah, acceptable narrative or, or a, you know, that over the course of this 30, 60-day journey that you're, that, that it, that you're, the bravado fades, right? That you, that, and you, like I said, you don't have to go from, like, you don't have to do complete 180, it, it never really does. And maybe that's true to life. Like, you know, there are people who could go through any sort of emotional moment or whatever, and they're always going to be a snide smart ass about everything because that's just their nature to do it. But mm -hmm. like, I don't know. He, does he truly grow up on this journey? And you wonder if it's like, you know, I don't think so. And you're, I think you're <laughs> right. I don't know. He doesn't seem to know why he wants to do it other than the fact that it's just this sort of challenge and he can write about it. And I don't need him to find God or Jesus, but I need him to come away with something. And I can't necessarily describe what that is. Yeah. Well, it's it's hard when you don't know what the purpose of the journey was. Yeah. 
because there's no like judgment. Did he come away with something? Well, what was he supposed to come away with? Mm-hmm. There's no way for us to, yeah. <laughs> to say well, what are, I mean, so let's get into that. So this, this is um, like is so unlike the Appalachian trail or the Pacific crest trail, which are the Appalachian trails through like many, many national parks and state parks. And neither of those are religious, you know, they're, they're, truly secular, I guess is the best word the way to put it. They're just natural trails, right? They're they're not mm-hmm. they're not but this is a this is a bona fide religious pilgrimage. It is from one point to a cathedral in a city in Spain. And it, it attracts a number of people per year who are not necessarily devout Catholics or even Christian, um, who are doing it for purposes that are personal and are more you know, secular or more personal or whatever. And they, they do intend. So everybody kind of has their own purpose for doing it, but in, in many ways it's established as the sort of the way of St. James and absolution of sins and stuff. So what, what exactly is a pilgrim? What determines if one is on a pilgrimage? It is debated in the book. Some sort of conclusion might be reached. I can't tell. And he's often questioned his, his authenticity anyway. So mm-hmm. let's kind of break that down. A pilgrimage, a pilgrim, like what are these things, especially in our modern context? Because in a medieval context, we can totally just go to the history books and say this is what a medieval pilgrim was, right? Mm-hmm. In our modern context, what would a pilgrim be? I guess in our context, maybe not from a biblical worldview, it is someone who I think throws off <laughs> – throws off the world to a certain, but like the weight of the world, you know, technology, that sort of stuff. And is just alone with whatever the location is and himself, maybe there are comrades and going from one part to the other. Mm-hmm. And I think there is some sort of personal purpose there. Um, I feel like my idea of a pilgrim is so wrapped up in a religious context, which is why, you know, I was having trouble like getting with his definition of of what it was. Um, And just the idea that, you know, Abraham's called a pilgrim. Christians are called pilgrims just because like this earth is not our actual home. So like our lives are like a pilgrimage because we're like trying to make it to our holy destination, which you know, would be heaven there. So that's kind of what I always think. But if you take the, I mean, he was on like a literal pilgrimage um, because he is going on this holy path. But I think there was just like so much that he was taking with him and maybe not enough too. that. I feel like he didn't really have the essence of a pilgrim, I, I guess. But then I to contradict myself, I think it is also, you know, these journeys that we make, it is for that person to decide what that journey is to them and how they're going to attack that journey. And so if that was how he wanted to go at that journey, then I guess one cannot besmirching for that but at the same time he is also doing he's besmirching you know javier who's trying to do like the you know the literal yeah, as close as possible that pilgrimage following the yellow lines even if it went down into some sort of gully yeah which was that that one section that they kind of uh, had issues with so yeah i just feel like you're stripped of Maybe not necessarily yourself, but 
certainly things that like you've attached yourself to, you know, idols, um, day to day worries, like the things that really burden us in this world. And you're just single mindedly on this journey for whatever purpose it might be personally for you. And uh, there is a destination. Hopefully you make it. I think it's a physical destination. I think it could also be an emotional or spiritual one as well. So that's as far as I've kind of gotten if we have our our contacts versus like my personal religious idea of what it should be. Well, I could see in a religious context as that because you have you have certain pilgrimages that are sort of pre laid out for that particular religion's members, like the Hajj, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think of on the secular side of things, the non-religious side of things. Uh, people who are really devoted to something in their lives and consider, like baseball fans, consider they find something just as fulfilling in the one trip they get to take to Cooperstown or perhaps doing the classic baseball park tour or something. That the idea that of a pilgrimage religion, but perhaps to something else that is an aspect of their identity and that they feel very devoted or attached to, um, you know, that they find a, they, they find a deep connection with, cause it doesn't necessarily have to be a religion. Um, I mean, for all I know, you know, it, it could, it could have been the grateful dead, you know, and, and the sorts of things, you know, that that you're 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 following something and you're in search of something. And I, 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 I guess that whatever you're going to get out of it is personal. Um, and you are you are taking you are right now you are taking that time to to step away from your daily life to do it. Um, and doing it in a way that is deliberately planned. Um, you know, the, then, and, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about the definition of tourism versus a pilgrimage. Cause he does get into that very late in the book. Um, his authenticity is questioned, especially by Madame de Brill, which is ironic considering she never actually hiked the Camino. She is not, is too busy. Um, but it is questioned later on. Um, I get where he would not be truly considered a pilgrim, even though he completed the whole thing because of a lot of the cheats that he does. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't want to gatekeep, you know, mm-hmm. the same way at the end of walk in the woods where, um, Bryson's friend, uh, Steven, whose last name, I can't remember. Cass yes. is like, Dude, we hiked the Appalachian Trail, you know, without like he's like, well, we never really no, We hiked it. Um, there is a sense he's low. He completed the Camino. And I don't know, like uh, gatekeeping has a negative connotation. But if we start adding qualifiers to what makes a pilgrim along something like this, are you being just as bad as somebody who's gatekeeping something else? Or are people like him? who do this with a more secular mindset, appropriating another word that's used quite a bit. Mm. So 
was he appropriating? Was he? Yeah. What was was this was this appropriation this on book? his part, or were people like who were questioning his authenticity just being gatekeepers? Oh, I see. Interesting. Well, can it be appropriation if? I don't think that it is, though there were times I was wondering about this, but because he wasn't, I think, actually, I don't know, speaking from like a religious perspective. Mm. Uh, well, the only thing I would say is, I guess, is get up. But you kind of had to wear that shell, didn't you, in order to to be seen as a pilgrim. But, yeah, yeah. because he's not um, pretending to be someone he's not. I think that I'll let him pass and say he's not appropriating. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, the issue with the, obviously us and, and yeah, I'll, I'll speak on my my behalf anyways, you know, judging him for this is that I have not watched, walked that. So there's only only so much I can do. And I know what I would prefer for myself personally. But you, yeah, you are right. I think there's I think the fact that anyone is on that trail keeps it alive. And there is something special about that. So however they do it, I think it just goes back to that point I made earlier of, you know, it's for them to decide mm -hmm. and it's their own personal journey. So perhaps we shouldn't. But also, I don't think you should be disrespectful. So if people were seeing him as being disrespectful, then I think they may have a right of saying, you know, you're not a true pilgrim because, you know, you're not looking at this history here or what this actually means to the people along this trail or the people that have come before you. Yeah, and, and he he does contemplate this. Um, like I said, he at one point he stays in a hotel called the Parador. So they start talking. They start giving him the nickname the Parador Pilgrim because everybody else is staying like a hostel with a group or whatever. And he's like, well, I'm going to go, you know, and, and he he's not really apologetic about it either. And that bugged me because I think. Uh, at that point in the trip, because this is late in the trip, that point in the trip, I would have been like, no, I'll stay with everybody else, you know, because, you know, because by that and you found your group. Right. Um, so I, that's why I said he's this is where he kind of comes off as an ugly American to me. Um, mm -hmm. But he has a statement. I'm skipping around, by the way. This is K because um, because I kind of. In full disclosure in the discussion, I want to get the discussion of the author and narrator out of the way so we can talk about the the history and, and the stuff that interested us a little bit more than the actual narration. So um, he has a paragraph here. He says he's talking about the group. This is on page 144 in the paperback edition. It's in the chapter, chapter seven. Uh, Panferrada, and he's he's talking about how they all kind of get into these groups. The, he says we are trying to assert an approach to the road or an interpretation of it that is some in some sense bigger than ourselves. The old vocabulary of the road, that language of suffering, penance, grace, mystery, are terms most of us find uncomfortable in our conversations. There are those who make a show of old-fashioned piety. They assume a public position at every church praying a little loudly, or they strike stances of studied pensiveness, make it known that they are writing in their journals or alert other pilgrims to the beauty of a sunset. They are, in short, annoying. They walk the road with an untroubled confidence in what they are doing. 
The rest of us are anxious. Madame de Brill's words haunt everyone, even those who may not have encountered her. Are you a trill pilgrim? This frantic effort to make the road into something else, either through history or tradition or endurance or mere enthusiasm, is tangible. It's, it is a kind of competition. All our discussions are flavored with the subtext of I know more than you. At times, this competitive edge manifests itself as knowledge of tradition of history of what's around the next men. The spirit assumes, and then he gets into the story a little bit more. So he's, he's talking about that. Is this his hang up? Is this like a cynical view of the world? Or do you find that to be true? Is this kind of a human nature thing? Is this one of the things that's kind of offensive about his narration? The fact that he's just pointing out, like, he's he seems to be thumbing his nose or just kind of sneering at those who are very outward or extroverted in their display of piety. Um, and he's essentially calling them pretentious. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like, what what's your take on, on what his view of that is? Which, you know... There is a level to that, right? And and even the the biblical verse that don't let your right hand know what your That's your other right, hand yeah. is doing, and that some people outwardly are, you know, it seems like they're very pious, but it's more of a show offy sort of way. So you can't really trust what's actually going on. So it, you know, those those people are in fact annoying because you can't tell. Yeah, I went to college with a lot of. I mean, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can't tell what's actually in their heart mm -hmm. and, and their braggadocio. It just looks like, okay, what's what? And then it's just – it's a turnoff. So I understand his his critiques and his criticism, but for those of them – like I don't know what – he could take anything as outward piety and not, not care. Mm -hmm. Like he could look at me and the fact that I don't swear at all and take that as something that is, you know – offensive to him because it's like outward piety. So I don't know what his level of, um, I don't know, uh, what would be the, the word? How, what is his level of not understanding, I guess like his ability to swallow mm -hmm. all that is it of tolerance. That's tolerance, what I'm looking yeah. for. Is his tolerance very low or is it high? But for those people that are on a pilgrimage, going to these places that is steeped in history, both religious as well as statewide. What if they do take on a different guise? What if they look different and they behave different? So that's kind of hard, hard for me to say, but yeah, making fun of people for their behavior. I don't know because that poor Italian man, like he did sound really, obnoxious or like culturally unaware but also the fact that everyone was making fun of him made me feel really bad for him he, he brings up in fact i was thinking about that he brings up that guy in the terms of and i could relate to this when he starts relating it to like junior high bullying of kids like that like nobody talked to that kid and, and stuff like that and it really did feel like that and eventually the guy just eventually joined them because he was kind of socially awkward, socially inept, right? Like, you know, yeah. it's hard sometimes when you have a first person narrator to separate their inner monologue from their outward behavior. 
So like, I don't know if this is, if this is just an inner monologue and his outward behavior is a lot different. Like he's putting on a front of, you know, seeming like this doesn't bother him. I found it in some regard to be authentic because I, you know, I joked a few minutes ago that I went to college with a ton of those people, you know, and I've taught a lot of students who are, who are that outward and everything. And, you know, I try to be, you try to be as respectful as possible, but there are times where, you know, especially when I was in class with the, my classmates, not my students, it would get annoying, especially because they used it as a way to score points with the team, whatever, without getting into it. So I can totally see his point of view here. But at the same time, if I'm him and it annoys me at first, I have to come to accept it because we are on a Catholic pilgrimage, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's one thing if I'm sitting in the middle of a history or civics class or, or even a, even a class of like, there was this kid, oh, I'll never forget this guy. Uh, I won't. I won't put his name on. He's not probably not listening to this, but I won't. I won't use his name. Um, we had we had a philosophy class. I remember we were talking about. Uh, we were doing Aristotle, and he. Oh, like ninety nine percent of the time would raise his hand and say, from a Christian perspective, and go on into this and this and this. Uh, on the ancient Greeks, and you could see, even if they weren't on the faces, you could see the eye rolls. And it was. It was just one of those things where it's just like, yeah, but do you have another perspective on her? When you're not, when it's not in the context of the thing that you're talking about, you can roll the eyes harder. But when when you're on your way to this place that is like deeply steeped in medieval tradition of the Catholic Church, sooner or later, like you have to realize that you're the one who's the outsider. Like you're the yeah. one who's kind of the problem here. Um, so I found some authenticity in that because I totally could see just about anybody looking at like, you know, the, um, the teacher's pets like that. But at the same time, it was just kind of like after a while, it got that, just look at a lot of, a lot of things about his narrative. It got tired. And I think that's mm-hmm. what it is. It, that's what I say. It doesn't change. Not that he's a bad person. So I wanted to separate that. He's kind of obnoxious, but like, like. The whole, there's a whole thing with like um, these Flemish filmmakers and the people he's hanging around. There's like there's not a lot of likable characters. That's kind of the other problem. And um, he's got these two Flemish filmmakers, Willie and Carl or whatever. And at one point they're fighting. They're like they are really ready to kill one another. And this is late. And then he's like he he grabs this guy Claudie, who he's kind of attached to at this point, And he's like, come on, let's go. Which is kind of a a nice thing to do for this guy because Claudie would have gotten caught up in that and probably would have gotten hurt. Um, so there are times where he is doing kind of the nicer thing. He tolerates a few people who are a little bit more annoying than he is, but at the same time, it's, yeah, it's not as, uh, it's not as, as I don't know. It, it's not as engaging as our other two narrators have been. couple more things. And then we'll get to the, the history stuff because I find I do find the whole Camino thing interesting. In chapter 11, which is the last chapter of the book, Santiago, they get closer to their destination. And he discusses the nature of tourism as opposed to pilgrimage. And this is where he gets very cynical. He basically says that pilgrims are no different from tourists. Um, 
how correct is he here? Doesn't he does he say something about like the tourists go with no destination in mind and pilgrims have a destination in mind? Was that one of the distinctions? Or am I making something else up? The tourist lacks something vital in travel, a sense of sense of caprice, spontaneity, adventure, the open endedness of life without a schedule. The tourist has none of those. He's treading on the circuit. On the spectrum of travel, the safe and tedious tourist anchors the far end. The other anchor is the true traveler, the one who blazes the first trail, Marco Polo, for instance. In the pathmaker's wake come others who are nearly audacious. Yeah. Uh, we, we pilgrims want to believe that we are not tourists, but by whatever definition you want to use, pilgrims are tourists. Mm-hmm. Um, our itinerary is a thousand years old. Our route has been walked millions of times. Far from being the first, a pilgrim is in fact the opposite. With each step, we are precisely the last person to cover that patch of ground, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he talks about how the romance of Santiago is a lost cause. And I, I don't know if he's doing all this to set up this moment at the very end, because this is the last chapter of the book, the moment at the very end where he's like crying at the statue of St. James. So if he's mm. doing this to set up kind of a beginning and end, or, or if he actually believes that, but I don't know how did, do you, uh, how much do you agree or disagree with him? I think it is very cynical. Mm. I, I know tourists get a bad name, but if I think about when I'm a tourist, like, you know, I'm about to be a tourist in Germany, right. Or, or other places that mm-hmm. I've traveled, I am going to experience the culture and I don't have a set destination in mind, so I think there is a, a difference there. But the fact that I am kind of, you know, traveling in a strange land of which I do not belong, then I think potentially I literally am a pilgrim. I, I don't know that I go with the purpose. You know, if I went on a pilgrimage, I think I would have a very particular purpose. But, um, you know, if I go to... Italy or something, or I really want to go to England in, in a couple of summers, mm-hmm. you know, the idea is to, to be in this other, other place and, uh, soak up the nature and the culture and the history. Am I looking at how it's going to change me? Maybe at least in, in broadening my horizons. And there's so much money going out though. Because with pilgrimage, you almost pilgrimages, mm-hmm. you are almost relying on the hospitality of others. Mm-hmm. So I think there is more of an exchange, but and a personal and emotional exchange between people groups when you're a pilgrim than it is when you're a tourist. Because I think with tourism, it is so commodified. Mm-hmm. But pilgrimage is like you shouldn't have anything with you and you are relying on, you know, this guest host relationship. Yeah. And I know that along the Camino and other and even even in in some cases when you're doing the 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 hostile, not hostile, S-H-O-S-T-E-L, not hostile um, thing through Europe, there (laughs) is a sense of community. Um, Sometimes you have to pitch in. It's done in the very cheap. Um, it seems to me that there's like degrees of tourists, though, right? Like because I think the cynical, cynical one view, and the where that is used in this, where that word tourist is used as a pejorative, is of the the bus is going to shuttle us from 
highlight to highlight. We'll get out. We'll look at it for half an hour and then we'll go back on the bus and we'll stay in our bubble the whole time. Right. And mm-hmm. I've been on tours like that too. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's basically the, the real, the real world version of just hitting everything at Epcot center. Um, and I like Epcot center, but what you were just saying, how you want to experience the culture and stuff. Um, that's still tourism, but it's of a, it's of a more involved degree, you know, like there, there's, there's a separation between that and the, and the, I'm never really going to leave my, my comfort. Like it, you know, you're, you, you are what you were describing and what we've both done to some degree in various places is allowed that comfort level to fade or go away so that we could actually genuinely experience, you know, place where we are and in some cases we're still being tourists we're still being taken care of so it's not like we're living there for you know six months or whatever um Mm -hmm. but i think there's degrees in that um i don't know if i agree with his statement of you know we're like how how he's he seems so dismissive of the person doing the pilgrimage you know that we're holding it up as this big thing when like a ton of people have done it already but am I going to tell that to a Muslim who can afford to go to Mecca? You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, am I going to tell that to somebody who is Christian or or somebody who's Jewish who who who, who saves up and goes to Jerusalem at the, in, in praise of the Wailing Wall? Like, you know, how many millions of people have gone there? No. You know, I, I think that's that's actually that. And I'm not religious and I find that offensive. <laughs> There's something annoyingly hipster about pissing and moaning about something like this. Well, everybody else has done this. So, like, what's the big deal? You know? And mm-hmm. I know he doesn't come off as – he kind of comes off as hipsterish to me, but not in that sort of millennial way. But there is. It's something like, you know, well, so what? Like, you know, I've been to – I have been to places that millions of people have been, but it was my first time there. You know, like Paris, Right. Everybody's been to the Louvre. So many people have seen the Mona Lisa, they have a separate line for it. And yet I'm like, I wanted to see the Mona Lisa, you know, like that sort of thing. It's so when he says, like, you know, um, we're the lowest of the low because we're just treading the same path that thousands of others have blazed, like, so what? I don't know. I'm losing my train of thought here. So. <laughs> I just don't yeah. get it. I don't, why? You, He's literally on the trail. Yeah. What? So isn't that like the definition of a hypocrite? Yeah, it's just like he's come to this conclusion that like, what's the big deal about this? And you're like, well, I suppose you could go on a personal, spiritual, philosophical journey in your everyday life. Plenty of people have done it because not everybody can afford to fly to Spain and you know hike for right. thirty, and, and not many people can afford to take a month off from work, et cetera, et cetera, um, or hike the Appalachian Trail or you know whatever. But at the same time, I don't know. I just you know there is no harm. You are not putting anybody else in harm's way by doing this. You know. Like there are very few times in the world where you want to go off and do something. And I'm like that. I would say like, that's a horrible idea. And it usually has to involve, it usually involves doing something harmful to others or yourself. 
the, 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 everybody has their motivation. Sometimes they share the motivation because it's a collective destination and a lot of them have a collective purpose. Perhaps it is devotion or faith or whatever. But a lot of times, I don't know, some people might do it because at least at the start, maybe they don't know why they're doing it aside from the fact that they need 30, they need this time to clear their heads. Right. And they'll, they think maybe they'll find something along the way. And if they don't, at least they've had that journey to, to be mm-hmm. in a sense. What do you think? I'm, I'm not being very articulate. I apologize. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I think I agree with you that, that, so what you're saying is, uh, they may not have, more any more of a purpose for being on this trail than just like being in the moment at least at the start i mean maybe they find something along the way you know yeah and i think being open to that which i think may have been his issue is that he wasn't necessarily Mm -hmm. open to it as far as i could see i don't know yeah Yeah. he um meets a few people and then we're gonna get into history but like i just want to there's a couple of things that struck me as very, very strange in the course of this book. One is Ramon, this weird. And that was actually it was funny in places because he's literally living in this cathedral that's falling up, like literally falling apart. And Hit writes this as this comical, like I met this weird Norman Bates type of guy who's clearly mentally unstable. He seems to be talking to somebody, but there's nobody else there. So we think he's just kind of talking to himself. That's why I wrote Norman Bates in there. Um, but then there's this other thing, cause they talk about him. Then there's a, the saying that comes up several times and I'm going to curse, go a pilgrim, return a whore. And it usually is in the context. It's a wholly sexist remark, but there's a number of men on this trip. And there's a, they, there are, there are a few women who they meet, but it's mostly men. Um, and some of them are very lecherous. Uh, Ramon's one of them. Willie is another one. Um, Willie harasses and even assaults like this one girl. I can't tell if there's, I can't tell if he's trying, how he's trying to present this. And I know this book was written back in the mid nineties. So the, our perspective on these things has shifted, um, since then. But I was like, I was worried for any woman who came across Ramon. And I was yeah, and those two yeah. girls too that were in their party for a yeah, short time. Yeah, those two Spanish girls who were in the party for a short time and then kind of went off in their own way. And Willie was harassing one of them. Like we brought this up last last class, last episode. Um, yeah, Cheryl Strait and the guy who was the, the two hillbilly guys who were like, "Come here, come here," you know, and, and the fact that she was really fortunate to only have like that one instance where we mm-hmm. do live in a world where being a woman, especially in our country, being a woman out on your own in that regard can be dangerous and, and often unfortunately is. And, and, and we we're seeing a little bit of there. I was struck by how dismissive of these incidents or just matter of fact, he took it. He didn't seem to, I maybe me, I should, I don't want to put too much on him from my perspective, almost 30 years later, but I would think I would come off in my narration of those moments as a lot more wary of these people and offended by them. 
He doesn't mm-hmm. like Willie. Um, that's one thing I will give him credit for. And he sees that as just like, dude, what the hell is your problem? But he doesn't necessarily come to the defensive of, of, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I would be a little more, if I was narrating this, I would be a little more, uh, a little harsher with those people. And maybe prevent that one woman from being groped. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's the 70s. It's the 90s. Wait, when was it? It's like 93. 93. Oh, the book okay. was published in 94, so this was probably 92, 93. And I feel like our morals are looser now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what's going on. I, I, <laughs> I mean, you can really tell all the piety in that group mm-hmm. right there. Yeah, no, I, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> Honestly. I've come across, but we but we probably both come across or at least read stories of people who were, quote, pious and were the worst when it came to that. You know, they were the mm-hmm. ones hitting on the men. They were hitting on the women the most. Like, yeah, you're real pious there, man. But they were certainly outwardly, <laughs> you know, they put it on sure. a lot of display. It bothers me because these are things that in some regard are fun. Not not hitting on women, but um, walking these trails, they're fun. They can be personally and spiritually fulfilling. They can be physically fulfilling and very, very tiring. They should be a safe space, you know, and mm-hmm. very often they're not and or sometimes they're not. And I, I wonder as myself as a outside of uh, outside of speaking up when I see something, how to help make it a safe space. It, it's a conundrum for someone who wants to who wants to make sure he's being a good ally and is not necessarily sure, you know, how to do it. Aside from being yeah, well, aside from I know what to do in the moment, but like what about all the you know, you know. Well, it's hard because everyone needs to be responsible for themselves. So if everyone was doing what they should be doing, there wouldn't yeah. be an issue. So, I mean, all you can do as an ally is kind of watch out for stuff that's that's not happening, uh, that shouldn't be happening, because obviously I would trust you, <laughs> you know, that that you wouldn't be doing that no. kind of stuff. Um, and, and by being an ally, you're also modeling to other men that, you know, that's this is the behavior you should be you should be putting on. And, you know, it's unfortunate just because. You know, when I read sections like that, I feel like this is just this is America. I'm not transported at all to yeah. Spain. This just feels like where wherever these people are actually from, because they're not behaving any differently. They've taken everything from their their lives with them. And I think, again, going against my idea of what a mm-hmm. pilgrimage should be of like stripping yourself away from that. So yeah, it is just a disappointment that they weren't behaving differently or at least being open. I don't know, more open, um, and less <laughs> ready to goof off and do kind of crazy stuff. Cause think of all the conflicts in the, that group that could have been avoided yeah. If they had kind of dropped their ego at the beginning of the yeah. well, the and those do the filmmakers too. Like the thing I didn't put in the because I didn't want the synopsis to get longer than it was is uh, reading into their backstory when he was talking about it. The reason they're on this Camino is that they had like raised money to basically film themselves doing it. So there's a it, it's it's apparently money to help build a 
something in the town or church or whatever. But it's, you know, it's there's a little bit of for all the religious aspects of that for Willie and Carl, um, there's also like a personal fame aspect to it. Like we're making a movie. So they're, they're almost as bad. They're, they're almost in the same way, Jack, because Jack's pretty much setting out to write a book about this, you know? Um, but you're right. They're, they're not really, they're only leaving so much of themselves behind. There are points where I feel like he sees the countryside and he sees the places, but I think he complains more about it than anything. Sometimes when he complains about how the modern world has encroached upon this, where like, you know, God, we got to cross the highway. Like that's where I feel like you're legitimately complaining and I totally get it. Um, other times I'm like, take it in, man. Like where in America can you cross a bridge that was built in the 11th century? You know, like those sorts of things, like where in America, there are a few places in America where you can drive or walk now that hasn't been like, you know, had a Walmart dropped on it or something, you know? So it's like, there are a lot of, a lot of the route of the Camino is like unspoiled countryside and you're not really giving us everything. And I, I get the mundanity of the day to day. I like how he wasn't completely romantic about it. And he was pointing out like, you know, <laughs> when there, there were bugs and there was the road was hard and they fell into ditches and that sort of thing. Like, so that stuff I found like actually entertaining because at least, okay, you were actually being, you know, genuine with like, just kind of the way Bill Bryson and Cheryl Strade were, where it was like, yeah, this is how much it could suck too. Right. It gave me that, but not enough of it for me to keep going. But it did seem that we were both more interested in the historical and the other aspects of it. So let's, let's kind of wrap up with those particular questions and then I'll, I'll get to the afterward. I found the history um, of the Camino as well as uh, all the other things necessary because it kept me really engaged in the book when I was tired of his shtick. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah. Yes. What do you think about like the whole thing with Charlemagne and the Song of Roland and, and medieval architecture? Um, What was your... Um, I don't know, what was your favorite part of that? When literature, the history mm. of architecture and stuff. We'll get to the stuff of miracles and the Catholic Church and all that in a minute. But like the the, yeah. the, the more the more academic stuff. Sure. Yeah, even though I am an architect major, mm-hmm. as well as a classical major, I think the literary aspect of it was the most intriguing because it's always interesting to hear how legends go from being a legend and passed down orally to written down and how that kind of uh, evolves. So I found that pretty interesting. And then, you know, talking to the natives of that area and getting their two cents (laughs) about who killed Charlemagne (laughs) and things like that. And this was a story that I was unaware of. So that, that made it even more interesting for me. But all of it really worked well together, I would mm-hmm. say. So it and it, it was, um, I think it moved well because there were times in Bryson's that it was a bit slow with the history mm-hmm. and the data, the statistics. And it wasn't like Moby Dick, right, <laughs> where you're like, "Woo, you're real slogging through those fish species. But I, yeah, I enjoyed it and, and I was happy. And sometimes it is colored by... Yeah. It, but for the most part, I think that it it was uh, pretty good and and devoid of his. Yeah, voice. I um, 
I agree. I, I thought he did a better job of weaving it all together, or at least coming back to his putting himself back into the narrative um, a little quicker than Bryson. Bryson took a little, a little too long to get back into his story, but we were like really, yeah. really engaged with him and cats. So the, the Appalachian trail history was like really fascinating, but it's like, dude, get back to your trip. Um, in this case, I didn't mind it so much, but yeah, he was a little bit better at segueing in and out. And I agree with you. I was assigned the song Roland and um, the two lives of Charlemagne in college for a medieval literature course I was taking. Um, and they were, I'm kind of like with you, it's like, it's interesting to see how the story changes, especially when the story often is used for propaganda, you know? And so it's like, we want to have this history of this person to stoke up like essentially French pride or Spanish pride, because we need to defeat an enemy right now. you know, that sort of stuff. So a lot of, a lot of that history stuff, like really fascinating me. And you're right with the interaction with the people in the Basque towns was interesting to me because that's something I don't know much about either. So, um, but then we have like, there's a couple of, he gets into a few things. Um, he talks about the nature of miracles, especially because there, there are a number of small towns and cities in Europe that people do flock to because of the miracles that supposedly took place there. Lourdes in, uh, in France is one of them. Fatima or Fatima in Portugal or Spain, I think it's in Portugal, is uh, is another one. According to him, there were little miracles here and there that have supposedly occurred in Santiago, but the reason people went was the absolution of sins. I can see this being a motivator in medieval times, and this is going to sound really haughty beyond like Mr. 21st century, and, I'm not, and all those medieval people were stupid for believing in miracles, but is it something that is outdated in our modern and current day society? Do people still hold to stories of particular miracles occurring anymore? I, you know, as someone who's reading through John before I go to work, I would say yes. But I also think that even though Americans Apparently, the vast majority of Americans say they're quote unquote Christian. I think that the vast majority are not like practicing Christian. And did I talk about this last time? What's I going don't on remember. Here? I um, I can't remember. You might have you might have <laughs> talked about it on questions think... we don't have answers. Maybe I was listening was. to you earlier okay. today talk about Christianity and religion, so it kind of blurs together. Oh, yeah. okay. And so I guess I'll just say that being a Christian does not mean that you believe in God. That's not – that's like very low level. That doesn't count. So I just want to say that. But um, I think that as we move forward in time, I think we've lost a lot of religiosity and, and maybe not spirituality because I think people are so spiritual to a certain extent just for what? Who knows? But um, – I find so anyways, because John there, the, he go, they go through uh -huh. the miracles that Jesus uh, goes through. I find some of these, you know, that we see actually really fascinating and interesting. And there are even some of the martyrdoms, you know, it seems like when you're reading them on paper, they seem really silly and outlandish. But there are also some of them that are just really beautiful and, and that these people were giving up their lives to protect other people or for their faith. And so that was another thing that when he was like making fun of of some of this, um, I thought, well, you know, you may not believe in that, but some people actually actually do and yes there were some like really one up uh, upmanship mm -hmm. ones that we were seeing in this and that so that it does kind of get 
a little bit bizarre. And that's kind of like, are, should we be competing with piety and who's, you know, the best? No, we shouldn't. But I, I think that it depends on who you're going to ask. I think the, you know, the Joe Schmo off the street isn't necessarily going to believe in certain things, but people who are steeped in that and, and have that faith background, I think are still going to believe in that and still feel like uh, miracles are happening. He has a, I'm not going to go back in the book and look for it, but he, he describes something with like St. Augustine having some pilgrims come to him or, or students or whatever come to him and asking them for like, for him to place their hands on him to heal them or something. And he basically, St. Augustine is basically like, uh, that's not the point. You know, like, and the guys are like, right. you know, and the guys bug him enough that he just does it because he's just like, please leave me alone. I wonder if if somebody like a Jack Hit is affected by the outward knowledge of how many charlatans have taken advantage of people who are really looking for miracles, because it yeah. has been very forefront in our culture for decades, especially during his lifetime. You know, the the old tent revival of the you know the the televangelists and the and the real like grift christianity that has risen especially in this country that has i think in many ways poisoned the idea of a what being what a christian is you know there, i'm sure there's a lot of people who would say that they identify with some branch of christianity but necessarily wouldn't call themselves wouldn't use the word christian in that particular way that a lot of people do and one of the reasons is that whole like those who would take advantage of you know the people who are basically scamming other people um and i think that's and I, and, and I think that's one of the, the one of, i think that's why he's so cynical in that regard to be honest with you because this is 1993, so this is not, and he's an adult at this point, so he has very, very good knowledge of, like, the Jim Bakers and the Jerry Falwells, you know, who are not Catholic, but at the mm -hmm. same time, like, you're thinking miracles, and you're thinking all these things, and it's like, you know, and back in the day, the church would use these things for propaganda and to get money out of people, like, plenary indulgences were a thing. And I think he's drawing a corollary between the two, and so I think that's why he's so nasty in that regard the same thing with relics which is another thing because these are things that are used to promote to parishioners the pilgrims to a generally illiterate populace back in the medieval era you know here we have three shards of the cross that christ was crucified on here pray over them you know that sort of thing um, here's mm -hmm. the blood of St. James or whatever it is, the bones of St. James. Like, can we authenticate them? You know, like not modern science. They're trying to, they're, they're, will they determine whether or not they're actually that blah, blah, blah. Again, do we even care about this stuff anymore? You know who cared about it? Hitler killed, cared about the it. Spear of destiny. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he, yeah, he it, was all about it, you know finding different things like that. He was into it, the occult the and finding things. Society at bay, I will tell you that. Yeah. Um, do we even care about it? Uh, I guess not more so than in a in a mythological or pop culture sort mm -hmm. of sense with Indiana Jones, yeah. etc. But you know a lot of. <sighs> 
a lot of people they they you're right the crowds can be easy we, we've talked about this before right the crowds are easily yeah. swayed you know one day they're ushering jesus in they're laying palms there the next day they're crying for barabbas to be free so you know we know that they are easily manipulated and that's why that one section where a wendy's sign some sign went up and it looked like mary or jesus yeah. or something wasn't yeah. that in this book so i i get like that's that's foolishness let's let's try to think about this but you know uh the cross has <laughs> it's got some history in it have you ever read the dreamer the no. rude oh interesting i'm surprised um Anyways, I, I I don't think we care about it. I care about it, but I think it's just like another it's another sect of individuals. So I, and I wonder if it's um, from my point of view back when I actually participated in these things. I, I always love going to, uh, especially over in Europe, a Catholic like a cathedral, right? I don't know if uh, if you feel the same way. I do. just like the I I, I f you walk into a giant cathedral on the order of Notre Dame or Cathedral in Cologne or whatever, uh, which is another one I've been to. And there is a feeling of presence there. It's, it's, they're beautiful buildings and, and maybe it's just the way I was brought up. I'm, I'm, I tend to be very quiet and respectful and, you know, take it all in. But, you know, I grew up in the Lutheran church, which is, you know, we had a, we had stained glass windows and stuff. And it was, you know, very basic church and stuff like that. Didn't, feel the need for the layers of iconography that I've seen a lot of um, Catholic homes. And maybe that's, maybe that's why when I see him being cynical toward things like relics, I'm like, yeah, I kind of get it where I'm like, I was never brought up to need anything to pray with like a rosary bead or like anything like that. Like I didn't need props or anything. Maybe like, you know, I would, if I was told, okay, you have to read this passion of the Bible or whatever. Or I had, I think I owned a catechism or something, but, but you, you know what I mean? Like it, maybe that's kind of, that's the perspective I'm filtering things through when I hear about like relics and icons and things like that. It just doesn't have the effect on me that it might on other people. Do you think it's also that, um, we're American. I think it's part of it, too. And so perhaps if we were over in Europe or some other nation, that perhaps we'd be answering yes to these questions. It is so important. Um, I think so. Um, I think it would I think it would also depend on where and, and what our what mm -hmm. our particular family background was in Europe um, and our community. But I think I think you have a really, really good point there. Mm -hmm. So um, <laughs> our history of reading this book, we both checked out the same copy of the book from the library and it was a hardcover um, in order to have a copy of myself, I actually went and bought the book and, uh, discovered when I ordered it, but I ordered it from an independent bookstore, uh, books and crannies in, uh, South Southern Virginia. They have a great online ordering system. And I would recommend that you go through them before you go through the big A. Yeah. The books and crannies. A. They're great, great, great little store. Never been there, but I've ordered from them online plenty of times. Anyway, Plugs aside, when I opened it up, I was flipping through it, and I saw that there was an afterword. So I didn't realize there was an afterword until I got a paperback copy of the book. So I PDF'd it to you. And it's this little reunion he has. Claudia comes to visit him. Claudia's really dis disappointed because he doesn't party as hardy as he did back in the 
few years earlier because basically Jack's a parent now. And not only that, I think his wife's out of town, so Jack's on, like, kid duty. You know, when you have a toddler and an infant, <laughs> your time is kind of taken up. Does it add to anything to the book to write that afterward? Only because he doesn't seem as selfish a human mm. being or as much of a jerk, perhaps, than I initially thought. Yeah. Only because, you know, that he actually, he he um, becomes a, a, a stay-at-home dad and his wife is able to do her medical training. Yeah, she's like in med school, right? And, yeah, yeah and... Yeah, I guess he, he shows how much he cares about his kids, I think, and perhaps that he's grown up. So, which is interesting because the afterword, which does not appear in my hardcover. Yeah, it wasn't cover, in the hardcover. As yeah. you know, of course, no. That, uh, yeah, there wasn't much of a character arc for him, but all of a sudden, like, he's a completely different person. Yeah. <laughs> in the afterword. <sighs> So being that, I don't think that at the age in which Claudia visited him and the situation he was in, he would have been able to take 30 days off to go hike the Camino. Are trips like this appropriate for younger or unattached people? I mean, it seems like Bill Bryson is probably the exception here. But then again, his wife and kids were like, yeah, go do it. And he was also a successful writer at that point. So he had the means by which to do it. It's a little frustrating to me sometimes because like, I'd love to do something like this, maybe not this particular trip, but I'm just like, yeah, but then I think through the logistics and the fact that I have to be away from my family. And I'm like, you, and I think that's, and, and please keep in mind that I'm going to be 45 in about a week. And so therefore the midlife crisis is looming, but instead of, a Ferrari and a 20 something year old woman. Like it seems to be in this wanderlust to go on like a long trip. <laughs> Gas prices, what being what they are, I don't think it's going to involve a car. Really? Um, but like, yeah, like the hiking Appalachian trail or whatever. I don't know. I, but is it like, is this one of those things where like, it's a misadventure of youth? Cause that's part of, I think what I got out of that afterward too. Yeah, maybe. I mean, if he were to go on it now after having those kids, perhaps he would have, it would mean something different mm -hmm. to him. That's a good point. Yeah. Perhaps. So I think we both know the answer to this, but we do ask it at the end of every episode, which is, is this required reading? And I would say no. But. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I can add I, I anything can. to that. I would recommend going on like YouTube, checking out that Rick Steves clip. I'm going to drop into the show notes, looking at somebody's account, even if it's a video or something of a hike through the Camino de Santiago, because it's just, it's, it's a fascinating trip in itself. Jack hit writing this book aside. It's at least cool to look at and look into because it's a modern day religious pilgrimage. It's a modern day hike through a part of the world that is gorgeous anyway. So like go look something up on YouTube where somebody like just basically does a short film of something of them going through it or, or look at the Rick Steve strip and stuff in a video or whatever, which is like 15 minutes and at least like take in and just know what this is because that at least is, is good because it just kind of expands your, your world and it, it gives you a little bit of a window into a place that you probably didn't really think about in the past. So, all right. So we don't have any feedback at the moment, so please send us your feedback about this, about any of the other books that we've had uh, done lately, uh, Facebook, Twitter, 
and email. And the last question I'm going to ask is really the one that I ask at the end of every episode, which is Stella, what's what you got for us next time? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I had no idea what I was going to pick. I attempted Dharma bombs, but Jack Kerouac. But I didn't really think there wasn't too much hiking in it, honestly. And I, I just didn't know that I'd be able to manage a discussion mm-hmm. of it. So we scrapped that. So then I kept on searching and I found it. So we're going from a man to a woman again. So luckily, I, you know, we're bouncing <laughs> I love it how, out. Like, I picked the male books and you picked the women books. Yeah. <laughs> we totally didn't mean to do that because I've, we've both picked books by authors of a different gender than us, but it just fell that way. So it's just kind of funny. Yeah, it just happened. So man to woman and then religion with quotation marks to Ooh. war. So it, it, this, <laughs> this book is called, I don't know why I'm laughing. It is not a happy book. It's called, it's what I do. A photographer's life of love Ooh. and war by Lindsay Adario. Actually, by the title alone, that sounds really fascinating. So yes. I'll be looking forward to that. So you'll be able to hear that in about a month. And then after that will be our special, which is going to be really about this whole subgenre <gasps> of uh, as a whole of what we've looked at and stuff and, and trips and journeys and stuff. So, so come for that as well. But until then, thank you very much for listening truly this time and take care. And if you see some yellow arrows and they're going down one way and it's a difficult path, but there's an easy path and there aren't any yellow arrows, do what your heart tells you and don't let some annoying American convince you one way or the other. That is great advice. Good night. Good night. Tell them what the smile on my face for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.